0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today we're speaking with Scott Lamont, the CEO of renowned landscape architecture and urban design firm, EDSA. Scott joined EDSA in 1996 and has been a driving force in the firm's practice and strategic growth since. Before being named CEO, he was a studio leader and principal for 12 years. Instilling the firm's ethos with a design sensibility and comprehensive approach to projects while fostering long term client relationships. He's committed to the exploration of sustainable modern ideals and fostering values which positively personify humanity by balancing superior design and pragmatic business planning. Welcome to the show, Scott.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Scott, would you mind just giving our listeners a brief overview and background of your uh, experience?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I grew up here in Florida, in the southeastern part of the United States, went to school at the University of Florida to study landscape architecture, and I joined EDSA in 1996, um, where I had the opportunity to work on on projects here in America, and then later in my career was really given the opportunity to stretch out around the globe um, and work in many parts of the world. Um, You know, I started as a designer. I'm an entry- level designer here at the firm, and I had an opportunity to grow with the organization, I became a partner back in two thousand six-ish, something like that. and um, you know, later had the opportunity to lead my studio um, as a principal of the firm before you know taking on the role of CEO of the organization. And
2: Scott, what led you to landscape architecture?
1: You know, as I mentioned, I grew up here in Florida, and Florida also happens to be home to Walt Disney World. And as a child, I was able to visit the Magic Kingdom within Walt Disney World and and just experience the magic, right? And everyone always talks about it. Um, and it, was, it just blew my mind as a kid. But while during the time when I was visiting, they were also building another park. They were building Epcot. It was happening um, not too far from the Magic Kingdom, and it kind of clicked with me that you know people actually created these experiences you know that this wasn't some magical thing that just fell out of the sky that you know that there was buildings there was you know a real thought behind the development you know and of course this is you know an adult remembering what I probably was difficult having a difficult time trying to process as a kid Um, but I knew that it was it was created and that that really resonated with me now I didn't connect that to landscape architecture. Architecture until uh, much later, when a family friend who happened to be a landscape architect, um, you know, will I say formally introduced me to the profession. But when I made the connection, it was quite powerful, um, and it really inspired me um, to want to be a designer and to participate in that. And it was really fun years later when I had the opportunity to work with Disney and you know spend time with them and, and help them create some of those magical places. was, was has been an honor in my career.
0: And can you tell us a little bit more about EDSA, um, the evolution of the company and how it operates today?
1: Sure. Well, we were founded in 1960 um, by Edward D. Stone, Jr. And, and Ed was, uh, was an incredible leader to our firm. But he was also the son of a very well-known um, building architect, Edward Durrell Stone. And so, you know, he had Ed had seen how his father had run his practice for many, many years, where his father was you know, the, the senior leader of the firm and the primary decision maker and everything ran through his father. Well, Ed kind of approached his practice when he went into landscape architecture a little bit differently. He took a more collaborative approach. Um, he took an approach that was about the team and about everyone's ideas coming together um, in a very you know, shared collaborative way. Um, So that that really was drilled into the the ethos of the firm in the very early days, which I think helped propel us um, within the industry because we saw our clients as our partners and our friends. You know, we saw our seat at the table as equal to everyone else. And back in 1960, um, that wasn't necessarily the norm for landscape architects. we were the ones who kind of came in in the end and did, you know, shrubs and planting. Um, Ed saw it differently. Uh, So he ingrained that in the founders of the firm. In the practice, we've thrived over the years. Uh, Our practice has always been international, um, even in the early days of the firm, um, because of the relationships that it had with his father. We had assignments in the Middle East and in different parts of the world that you wouldn't normally have um, back in 1960. Um, And that continued. And as we continued to grow, our offices expanded. Now we we are roughly about 170 folks. And we have offices in Shanghai, New York, Orlando, uh, Baltimore, and our headquarters here in Fort Lauderdale, and we are just embarking on a new venture and opening in Raleigh, North Carolina. So the firm has evolved over the years, but uh, we think our mission stays pretty true to the way Ed taught us in the beginning, um, to be collaborative and work together as a team. And that's really the core of who we are as a firm.
2: But well, that's a fantastic uh, foundation story and, and and that consensus approach. Can you tell us a little bit about the EDS a design philosophy and how do you distinguish yourself from other practices in what is a very competitive space?
1: Well, you know it it really is it really is the uh, collaboration that we just spoke about. You know we we talk to our clients as you know as our friends and we take on assignments and we really try to put our mind um, into what they really need, you know, to help their development be successful, you know, and you can define success in many different ways. And we take the time to understand, you know, their goals. We take the time to understand the site, the land, the environment, um, and really um, provide thoughtful answers to them and work with them to help their projects become a success. So it's that team approach, and that is, I think, the most important thing. It's not about you know, the great singular designer who's gonna plop something on the table that everyone's gonna be inspired by. It's about working together to you know, solve a problem.
0: And just talking about design trends, what do you see as being um, perhaps the three uh, most prominent trends coming into the design sector?
1: Well, there's, you know, the design world is always changing, but there's some things that have been very relevant lately that uh, continue to resonate with our team. You know, the first is understanding the performance of our design. You know, we're reaching a point where we can really understand and measure the impacts that our design has. You know, the number of trees we put in has a positive impact on the environment, and we're in a place now where we, we can measure that, and we can demonstrate the success of our projects, not just because they're aesthetically pleasing or they're great spaces or they have a strong sense of place, but also the contributions that they make. Um, I think that's a trend that, you know, we as a firm are continuing to strive to get better at and learn how we can have that positive impact. And I think that's something that's going to continue. Um, One other thing that really stands out is technology. Uh, We're at an interesting time in the industry in that, that, you know, the, we are Transforming from working in a 2D world to working in a 3D world. You know, we've been modeling and working in you know various programs to to demonstrate uh, 3D visualization to our clients for the last many years. But um, it's really kind of reaching a fever pitch to where it's becoming fully integrated into the design process. It's kind of like the revolution that happened when people got off drawing boards. You know, right about the time I was coming out of college, you know, we all learned to draft, you know, the old school way with pen and ink on Mylar and you know that was really going away in the industry when I came out of school and we're in that place again where you know 2D drafting you know is still very relevant but you can see it on the horizon that there's going to come a time where it, it won't apply very much anymore that has an amazing impact because it gives us the ability to really show to our clients and to our team the built environment that we're creating with our own eyes you know, we did a project recently here in South Florida, the Boca Raton, and we were able to build the project and VR, and able to walk our client through it, so that there were really no surprises. And opening day, when we walked the property, you know, it was it was really remarkable to see that everything looked like it should, um, because it was designed in that environment, and we knew exactly what we were getting. Um, the last trend that I would say that is. Again, it's not a new trend, but it seems to be coming, become more and more relevant. And that is just striving for auth- authenticity and design. You know, we, look, we work all over the world, so we're always looking in the places we're working to try to understand what makes them special. You know, What's the difference between this, this site, this property versus one that might be 100 miles down the road? And how can we bring that into the design? Is there history? Is there something from the environment that we can let that inform us? Um, and then it really is a, a positive uh, driver and an inspiration for us. And bringing that all the way to the place where it can be recognized in the final outcome, or at least understood by the ultimate users of the spaces we create, um, that's you know, remarkable. And it's you know, very much something that we strive for in our projects. So we push for it, but it's definitely becoming more and more relevant because now our clients are speaking of it. The operators are asking for it in the hotel space. You know, the guests who are going to these destinations are looking for that. Um, so it's it's becoming something that is more and more relevant in our world. Well, Scott, we'll get back to, that's a good point about, about localism, but
2: we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, it, it's never easy being a consultant, um, both Jess and I are consultants. You know, sometimes, Scott, you know, the budget gets squeezed, you're subject to external forces you can't control and perhaps changing briefs. How does um, EDSA, you know, uh, have resilience during that sort of turbulence?
1: You know, it, it, it is challenging and certainly, you know, in our industry, it's something we've all experienced and, you know, every project does have its challenges. But when we can start with a strong foundation of a relationship, you know, with the team and with the client, um, that helps us weather that turbulence. It allows us to have very honest and frank conversations about how we can help each other to, to get to the resolution. Um, it is, you know, certainly necessary to be flexible. Um, and we try to adapt and do the things that we can do. We really rely on, you know, building that strong relationship because when we're working together toward that common solution, it's, it's a much easier situation than we're, we're just trying to react and, and put out a fire so as it were.
0: And what are some of the triumphs of the firm?
1: Well, you know, most recently, I would say, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, weathering turbulence. I mean, that's really what we've all been doing these last several years. And I'm really proud of the way our firm has adapted and become incredibly flexible um, over the last, you know, I guess it's been, what, almost two years now. Um, it's been it's been fantastic to see um, how we've thrived in this environment. You know, the, uh, the pandemic actually taught us that we could do things a little bit differently, and it's put us in a place where we're able to try things that we would have never, never would have thought would be successful before, and, you know, some of that is involving working remote, it's building teams across four and five offices and those of just one room here in our headquarters in Fort Lauderdale, um, it's really opened our thinking, and I'm just proud of the way everyone here has handled it, you know, the firm has come through stronger, um, and we're in a place today where we're... really heading on a great trajectory and, and we are very proud of what we've accomplished over the last 18 to 24 months
2: we thank victorian planning reports our very first supporter if you want the a to z of planning decisions in victoria and excellent editorials please get yourself a subscription to the vprs details on our website
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au.
2: Scott, your your firm operates in many different places in America and internationally, a huge variation in locales. How does your firm get to grips with the local conditions? And that, that's something that you were referring to before.
1: Sure. It, it's a very important thing. And the real key to it is um, just to be a student of your location. You know, really observe and pay attention to the environment around you. Um, you could really learn a lot um, from visiting the site and speaking with the locals and you know, doing your best to understand um, the cultural aspects of wherever you're working. Um, that, that's the number one thing that we, you know, we talk about and we travel a fair amount, although not as much in recent months um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, traditionally, you know, we, uh, we travel quite a bit. And you asked me earlier in the warm up, you know, have I been to Australia? I haven't. But it, like I said, it's one of the few places in the world I haven't been. Um, and that's because we really try to get out there and spend time on our sites um, so that we can learn that. You know, the other, the other thing about it, too, is, you know, we're a multicultural firm. You know, a lot of the places we work, we have folks um, within our firm um, that are from those areas. And, you know, they help educate us so that we can make very good design and planning decisions um, that are in line um, with what would be, uh, you know, appropriate in that cultural environment. And then I think the last piece of it is it's not new to us, you know, the markets that we work in, while it is very diverse, we've been working in these markets for many, many, many years. Um, it's, it's really fun to, to travel to a country that you've been doing work in for 15 or 16 years because you really get to know the people, you really get to connect in a different way. And that's one of the things that I think makes our firm special. It certainly makes our jobs fun.
0: Now, Scott, the the fifty American states have been called fifty different laboratories to test out different theories and practices. Is there a wide variety of outcomes, and what are you keeping a particular watch on?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I was, you know, thinking about that. It, it's it is different in different parts of the United States. You know, the United States has many different markets, um, but the outcomes. You know, I think we're all striving to. Create positive experiences and and develop the places that can make a difference. And what's interesting is, within the most, I'd say, last several years, we've seen you know a very strong resurgence of our domestic market, and the quality of the projects that are happening in the United States now are at a level that you know we haven't seen in a long time in markets where you wouldn't expect it. You know, just this past, you know, year I've been in cities such as like Jacksonville, Florida, on the north end here, or even in downtown LA and California, you know, the level of development that's happening in these spaces is is great to see. You know, it's it's wonderful to see, you know, the execution of these projects in these markets um, that you would expect in cities like Shanghai or New York and, and to see it in some of the smaller towns in America is positive. But, Scott,
2: talking COVID, which I don't really want to talk about, but how do you see the near and future, medium future, what design, land use, and landscape architecture trends um, will, will kick on from this COVID? Do you think, how will it influence those things, if at all?
1: I, I think it will. There'll be some things that will, will stick around, and one of them that we hope is the appreciation for the great outdoors. You know as as landscape architects you know we we've, we've always been advocating for that and i think you know covid reminded a lot of folks about the importance of it and the spaces that could be created out there you know has, has influenced our work and we've had projects where you know previously we would have to you know be advocating to do specific things within the landscape, um, you know, that would allow for people to have space to maybe have an outdoor gathering or things like that. Now it's part of the program, just like the lobby program may be part of a hotel or, you know, the the residential uh, arrival might be part of the program. They recognize that they need to put this um, to the forefront of the design, um, which for us as you know, landscape architects is exciting for as an industry. Um, you know, very much if you talk to any at least um, in North America and um, Asia, you know they'll tell you that all of the landscape architects are pretty darn busy these days. Um, we're all heavily engaged and taking on new and exciting projects.
0: And just staying on that COVID topic for, for the moment, one of the big demographic patterns um, caused by the ta- pandemic were big shifts in population. And from what we understand in America, it's mainly to the Sun Belt and away from the Northeast in California. You reside in Florida, which is a rapidly growing state. How are the recipient states handling the influx of new population in terms of planning?
1: Well, one of the the impacts that's happened within our community here, and we've seen it here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which um, for your listeners is about a half hour north of Miami. And um, it's, it's on the map now. We have developers and we have folks moving in from um, places that probably didn't know where we were not too long ago. But what that's done is it's heightened the importance of our open space, in particular, within our downtown market here, and recognizing that we have to be very careful of how we manage that open space and how we implement it into all of these new projects that are coming online, uh, because it's an essential piece of the fabric of a growing community. So I think that's that's one of the things that has really become relevant where we are. Um, you know, transportation is, has been another one, understanding how to make these communities walkable, how to get people on their bikes. You know, all the things that we think about as planners have you know, really become uh, very important topics um, within the downtown uh, area. And it's just in response to understanding there's, there's a lot of growth coming. And, and it's
2: got, in, in terms of changing patterns of technology, new hubs, whether they be tech, uh, health, educational, culturally based can emerge. For example, Miami, you know, we understand as a new financial center. Should we yeah. applaud these disruptions to the to the traditional status quo? And by that, I mean, certain places have been known as the hub of technology or the hub yeah. of culture or health. Should we applaud these you know, disruptions or, and, and change to the status quo? Um, your, your thoughts about the emergence of new hubs.
1: I, I think it's an interesting uh, notion and, and there is something positive, I think, to things being a little bit different and having communities have new opportunities to, to bring in new industries take on new identities and welcome new people within the community. And that's very exciting. And you're seeing a lot of growth um, in a lot of these communities um, that are the recipients of that. That's um, definitely a positive, but it's important you know, for all of these folks that are moving into these communities and these industries that are, you know, becoming the new uh, hubs in these, these cities um, to recognize that, you know, they, they need to engage within that community and be a part of that community. Um, that's where the real benefit will come um, is when they do that. And I, I do think that will happen. And, you know, that that does make it uh, very exciting.
0: And in terms of preparing a comprehensive urban redevelopment plan or a master landscape plan, it's very hard to please everyone. How do you approach these dilemmas?
1: You're absolutely right. It is very hard to please everyone. And in fact, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to please everyone. But, and this is an important, but the input from the stakeholders and that dialogue is key to the process. Listening to all sides, You know, promoting what we think would be the best decision you know, really allowing us to leverage our expertise um, and and bring forth the solution from all of that dialogue back and forth um, is, you know, is an important part of that process. Um, So we strive, you know, when we're working, particularly in the public environment, you know, to get that input and understand it um, and to be thoughtful and consider it when we're working through the projects. Scott,
2: it's it's often. as you, as you probably agree, it's often easier to copy previous successes than take risks with new concepts. Fair point. Do you think?
1: Well, you know, it's 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 certainly understanding the strategies behind them. You know, when we work with developers, you know, we understand what are the the elements that help make things successful. It's not necessarily copying the success. It's knowing the recipe and then how to bring it to you know that next project and, and push it forward. You know, the places that we work and the, and the aspects of our business, like every site is unique. They're very, it's very seldom that we'll have two properties that we'll be involved in while there may be similarities. There's always something that makes them unique and distinguishes them. Um, so it allows us to have that flexibility. But I do think that risk is an important part of design. Um, but you know, we have to be thoughtful you know, with the chances that we take and the risks that we take is we're, you know, creating spaces, um, but we're also serving our client who's investing, you know, behind these uh, design decisions that we make.
0: Now, just moving to a topic that I know is close to your heart, which is sustainability and design, and something that um, EDSA is heavily involved with. Um, Joe Biden, as president, issued an executive order announcing bold targets to achieve a carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035 put the United States on an irreversible path to a net zero economy by 2050. How is that affecting what you do day to day?
1: Well, it's affecting us because it's brought it to the forefront of the conversation. Um, You know, as landscape architects, you know, we all went to school to understand, you know, how we could be stewards of the land. Um, We learned design, you know, we learned ecology, you know, we learned how those things intersect. Um, so, for years, you know, we would be those advocates at the table, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of the site um, and on behalf of the environment with the project. Uh, but now, you know, because of the, uh, the attention that has garnered over the last many years, it's become, you know, the forefront of the conversation. And it starts in the beginning, you know, how can we make better design decisions um, to have a positive impact on the climate or on the environment? And there's many new tools available to us that helps us, as I mentioned before, and the trends, you know, be able to demonstrate the positives and demonstrate the impacts that we can have. Um, so, you know, I think it's made it very relevant. You know, I look back at a couple projects that we worked on recently. We had the opportunity um, to work on a project in Miami, um, here again in Florida, and you know, the Key Biscayne, is called the Back Bay Project, and essentially what they were looking to do. Um, was provide a nature-based design solution um, to creating a, a, a more resilient coastline and keep us you know, The Army Corps of Engineers, which here in the United States is a, you know, an arm of the government that manages all of the major waterways um, within the U.S., you know, had proposed well, we'll just say a very rigid engineering solution. Um, but you know, given the climate that we're in and the environment um uh, discussing you know all the positive impacts that we can have on the climate you know we were able to advocate along with our teammates Moffitt and nickel advocate a very positive design built by nature and built you know, through nature and really let the, you know the natural environment while it will be man-made but using natural materials um, to provide that really resiliency and you know the, our our client was very appreciative of the, the approach that was taken and ultimately the Army Corps now has noticed it and understand that maybe their solution wasn't the best one. And so they've actually gone back to the drawing board. And in my 26 years, I think it's the first time I've ever seen the Army Corps change their mind on anything. So it's, you know, it's very relevant in the conversations that we're having with our clients. Um, and it's, so that's a positive thing. But and it's going not- back,
0: Going back to what you were saying earlier as well, it must be really uh, beneficial to now- be able to provide that evidence back to your clients around the impact of those design tweaks that you're that you're making and the and the positive impact that they're having
1: it 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 is and you know we're getting to a place where you know we're striving toward uh, becoming better at that you know it's it's a goal of ours you know here at the firm it's one of our goals to continue to look back at our projects and be able to measure those impacts you know there it's a it's a Something that we really are trying to incorporate into our daily practice.
2: And I imagine the Army Corps of uh, Engineers, Scott. That's a pretty big tick when you get uh, their their acknowledgement and their respect. Um, just just moving on to a similar topic, creating healthier cities. I know it's a very broad, very broad subject uh, topic, but how any insights like not quick fixes, but maybe design approaches to making cities healthier scott any suggestions
1: well it, it's very similar to some of the things we talked about here within fort lauderdale and it's about you know creating a very cohesive and strong open space network making the cities walkable making them micable you know being very thoughtful in the planning um, can have a, a major impact on you know, the outcome if you look at some of the great cities of the world You know, know, one of the things that are are, is a common denominator in many of those cities is they are very walkable, and they create you know there's great open space networks and systems within them. So keeping that in the forefront, I think, is what's going to help you know us all have healthier cities where we can be outside, we can enjoy the great outdoors, we can bring green into the urban environment. Those are all positives.
0: And Scott, what are your sources of inspiration? Both, both personally and perhaps for your, um, for the company as well.
1: Well, it personally, it's really our our creative team here. You know, we we have many young designers uh, that are, you know, full of great ideas and and are looking at things differently, and that's inspiring. It's challenging. You know, they, you know, come to the table as I mentioned before. You know, we're all equal at that table, and we collaborate, share ideas. You hear these fresh perspectives. Um, it, it's inspiring us to continue to learn. It's inspiring us to continue to be better, um, and and strive for the best. So that that's one of my primary sources of, of inspiration. And I think it really goes both for the firm, you know, and for me personally.
2: Scott, I, I might apply for a job with the EDSA. But uh, how, how do you train your workers? Is there an EDSA way?
1: Yeah, it, I, I think there probably is. I don't. I don't necessarily know how to articulate the EDSA way. And we've tried actually, um, you know, it, it is it is a team approach. I think it starts there. We have fun with what we do. We don't necessarily take ourselves too seriously. I mean, we get involved in some pretty remarkable projects and the stakes are often high, but it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, and you know, we work as a team and have a good time while we're trying to get it done. But, you know, we do teach though, so we spend time With our team Uh, we do many uh, we call them lunch and learns and talks and this is again one of those wonderful things that came out of the pandemic when we realized if we're going to do you know a teams meeting uh, where we can talk about some new approach we're taking to a design you know we can get 60 or 70 of our folks tuned in to talk about that Um, and that was not something that we were doing regularly uh, before so those are those type of tools, we've taken advantage of that. We've created a whole series here within the firm. I don't know how many we've done, but it's it's probably well over 40 or 50 in the last year of sessions uh, you know, across the firm talking about our craft. You know, it may be looking at old projects and learning from them, or it may be looking at new techniques or challenges that somebody might be having with a design problem that they're working on and soliciting input and thought. You know, That's best way that we know to kind of teach our team so that they can see it in action.
0: Speaking of crafts, what about storytelling? This is something um, that I personally always see or something that I always observe in landscape architects is they're generally very good storytellers. How important is this in your work personally um, as a designer and a landscape architect? And do you think this is a lost skill?
1: You know, I don't know that it's a lost skill, but I do know that I think it's more important than ever now. Um, you know, we we spoke a little bit about the authenticity and that, that's where I always like to try to connect the story. Um, and I think it's an important part of what we do. It's part of our, our creative inspiration. You know, a, a recent experience, I have a I have a daughter uh, who's getting ready to go to college and she's trying to figure out what it is that she wants to do with her life. She's very much. Um, a writer. She loves to write. Now, she's grown up around our business. Um, you know, Obviously, you know, she's seen me progress through the firm and has been in the firm many late nights with me. But um, she never really understood what we did until she spent some time recently with one of my partners and his daughter, and they happen to be really good friends, went on a trip and they started to talk about you know, how we conceptualize our projects. And she came home from that trip and she says, dad, you know, what you guys do is really cool. Because you 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 actually write, but you do it differently. That's great. And I I looked at her and I was like, seriously? You know, you've <laughs> you've been watching this your whole life, and you know, you go to Mr. Smith's house and you find out how cool Daddy's job is. Okay, great. Uh, but but it did you know bring home for me the you know the importance of of, of that, and it just was it was a fun little anecdote. Um, earlier this year, I had an opportunity to speak at an American Society of Landscape Architects conference um, that was in Tampa, Florida, and you know we spoke about the story of place. You know, knowing that every story or every place that we work has a story, and how that story can drive the design and elevate our thinking um, to influence the outcome um, is pretty special. So, you know, to the to the original question, storytelling is important. Um, it's incredibly important.
2: Scott, we're talking about graduates and, and college students. How are the how are the grads you receive today different to your generation of grads um, when when they first emerged? I mean, it's a tough question, but um, do you think there's a difference in grads coming through now?
1: You know, it, it's what what I've seen, and uh, and I'm not trying to avoid that question, but I've seen such strong similarities. Um, between where we were when we were coming out of school. You know, as I mentioned, the technology, that's a big driver. You know, I came out of school at the time when we were, you know, about half the office was, you know, still drawing with pen and ink and the other half the office was, you know, just learning how to boot up a computer. And it's kind of, we're in that same space again, you know. So I can can relate to the challenges when, you know, some of our, our younger team members are trying to explain how we're going to do something with a technology that three or four of us standing around don't even understand yet. Um, And I can appreciate that. So I think it's given me a little bit of a perspective that I see those similarities probably more than I see the differences.
0: And what would you tell yourself or your former self, I should say, on your first day of work?
1: You know, I'd say to take it all in and learn. I mean, you know, landscape architecture is a pretty broad profession. know you're you're part artist you're part botanist you're part ecologist you know you're part developer i mean you're you've got all these different things that you learn um you know as you're as you're going through the profession but it's not linear you know you don't you don't start on day one and move through your career and get all of these different experiences in a a nice neat way um it's very random and it's driven by chance sometimes it's driven by opportunity and experience um, so I would tell myself to, you know, just take it all in and understand the learning experience that comes along with it, and take something from everything that you do. And you know, it's still good advice that resonates with me today. You know, I'm still learning as we go through, um, and I think that's an important part of it. It's one of the things that actually makes us a fun place to work.
2: Well, well, well said, Scott. And uh, are there any quotes that you live your life by? Well, it's pretty dramatic, yeah. but is,
1: is it sort of well? It is. It yeah, is, is dramatic. dramatic. But we we do we do have one and it does come from our founder and it's you know not not that not that he authored it but he definitely preached it you know it was the golden rule to treat others the way you want to be treated and that's something that you know has always resonated resonated with me um, you know our, I was fortunate to spend time you know with our founder early in my career and and got to work with him and understand uh, his presence but he demonstrated that of, of not just the words but what the actions were and that set an example that you know myself and all of our partners we, we strive for you know we strive to to live up to that um, and it's uh, so it you know it, it's not necessarily the quote but it's the actions that follow it.
0: Very wise I think um, as consultants it's particularly important um, you know consultants can sometimes get a bit of a bad rap in terms of You know interactions with external parties, and I think you're right. That's probably the most important thing that we should all be living our lives by and our working lives by. Certainly.
1: Well, you'll never regret it. That's for sure. Definitely. You know, it it always comes back to you, and those are some of those things that we all learn when we're young that that are that are real truths in life.
2: Well, well, Scott, having traveled to the states a few times, I know how incredibly polite Americans are and um, generous, but with with my practice, um, I've been to Japan a number of times and I've started taking a Japanese approach to all my interactions because they are incredibly polite and um, courteous and I, I just find when I do that people it's a no-brainer just reacts you know government officials or whoever react so much better to you that you're not going to be a goose. Any
1: thoughts? Probably. It, you know, Japan's a wonderful place. I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel there and do business there as well. And, and it, is, it is an incredible culture and it's a culture of respect and, and it, it definitely makes a difference. Um, and it's funny, you know, for in my career early on, I started practicing. I did a lot of work in the States um, and then it was probably around, you know, 2009, 2008 that I had the opportunity to start doing a bunch of work in Asia. And I spent many, many years working in Asia, um, you know, traveling back and forth. I was always based here out of Fort Lauderdale, but I was so used to the Asian culture and the way you present business cards and the way you introduce yourself that I still have a hard time, even in American meetings where people are, you know, handing cards out like they're dealing poker cards. I still want to hold them with both hands and present them um, the way that you've been <laughs> know, taught. Exactly. Yes. <laughs>
2: Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment, and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. And Scott, how do you refresh and relax?
1: Music. I'm very uh, interested in music. It's it's also one of those things that inspires me. Um, cooking, spending time with my family. Usually those two are connected. Um, sitting, you know, in my kitchen with one of my kids or my wife sitting at the bar, just chit-chatting. Um, to me, that's that's my relax time. That's the place where I can really unwind and and let go. It helps me refresh. It's oh, all important. And Scott, we've reached the uh, part of the podcast where
2: we we call it Culture Corner or um, Podcast e- Extra. Something that you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners.
1: I will tell you that um, just this past weekend, I was in New York City and I had the opportunity to um, to see Dear Evan Hansen, the Broadway musical. Um, which I went into the to the show with really no expectations. I I, I knew my family was very excited to see it, <clears throat> but I didn't really know much about the show, and and it was remarkable. Um, and I was I was really inspired by it, the message behind it, um, just you know the the way the whole production was put together. It is absolutely worth seeing and taking the time. W- what's it about, Scott?
0: I'm dying to say it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's, it's a very complicated story. Um, but I think in the end, you know, it's about social anxiety. It's about, you know, teens feeling lost or, or really anyone who's feeling lost. And knowing that, you know, you can be found. And that's a, it's a powerful message. It's told in a very creative way. It's not, it's not a traditional story, I would say, but um, it's certainly a really enjoyable. And it, again, we loved it. And really was a surprise because again I had no expectations going into it so I would highly highly recommend it
0: I'm a big fan of the music I think at the moment we've got the the movie um that's just been released in cinemas over here but um with COVID I think it's been fairly difficult to actually get to a cinema to to see it so I'm very, very keen. Uh, I, I would
1: maybe encourage you to wait and see it on on uh, uh, in that's, the theater. that's
0: exactly what I was thinking so I'm <laughs> holding out hoping it gets here soon
1: well, come visit us in the states and and you can see it up in New York.
0: <laughs> and Pete, what's your podcast extra? Well,
2: well I've got a couple Jess very briefly. My tennis, um, Scott, is absolutely on fire. I'm a hack of a player, but it's I'm playing the best tennis of my life. So uh, what I would urge um, listeners to do is to to, if they like playing tennis, if they like playing a different type of sport, even though they're getting on in life, go back and have another go at it because um, uh, the friendship with the club and uh, just that looking forward to tennis night, Wednesday night, uh, it's it's not how well you play, but it's just experiencing it. The other thing is, Jess, I've, I've taken the plunge and I'm listening to Audible. I'm listening to a, uh, a book, a talking book, and um, I always put it off because I always like the you know physical books, but... I just find, you know, if I go for a bike ride or something like that, I'll I'll look forward to the next chapter. So it's actually helping me exercise as well. So Audible, Jess, and and, and what about you?
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Pete, because I've been looking to download Audible for quite some time. Um, and, you know, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, I read every single night. But um, lately, well probably over the last couple of years, I really struggle to read more than four or five pages each night before I fall asleep. And I've got a Kindle and usually it falls on my face and wakes me up when when I'm falling asleep. Or my husband has to um, pry it out of my hands and turn the light off. And um, anyway, I've been thinking about Audible, thinking that might be a better way of um, getting through some more books in a bit more um, in a speedier fashion, I guess. But one of the things that I really enjoy about reading is that 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 focus that you get from just sitting down without a phone, just with your Kindle or with your physical book, and that's all you're focusing on. And I really enjoy that um, that break, I guess, in, in just focusing on one thing. Uh, and are you reading
2: something about that, Jess?
0: Yes. Well, that was going to be my, my next recommendation. And I've only just started reading this book, but so far it's really blown me away. And I've listened to quite a lot of podcasts about it. It's called Has Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And I think it's a relatively new book, and it's exactly about that issue about um, our inability to focus and our inability to, uh, you know, re- retain any kind of attention span these days. And you know, we I think we can all relate to that that we're all doing a hundred things at any one time, and so you know, it, it it's no surprise really that we struggle to maintain any form of attention span these days. And it's all about the, uh, you know, the reasoning behind that. And Johan Hari uh, speaks really eloquently about the topic and yeah, highly, highly recommend. As I said, I'm only just at the start of it, but the podcasts, um, podcasts that I've listened to about it are really, really interesting. So highly recommend that.
2: Scott, can you relate to that, the whole, that sort of attention span, um, getting bombarded with emails or phone calls or.
1: I I certainly can. Um, I'm an avid reader, but I'm also an avid audible user. I, I can relate to the bike ride with the book. And uh, I think that's a, that's a special thing. And I, I enjoy that time. I look forward to it. Um, I probably, I would say I would do almost every day, um, if not more than once a day, I have an opportunity to just take 10 minutes and read something or take five minutes and listen to something. to just kind of reset and refresh. It might be as simple as why I'm walking the dog or, you know, when the house quiets down for a minute and I can pick up a book, Um, but it does, it does help quiet your mind, bring you back into focus.
2: This has been a terrific interview. Um, I'm going to apply for EDSA uh, for a job, I think, sometime in Florida. It just sounds like a brilliant place to work. You've been a terrific guest. Um, thank you for joining our little podcast. And thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. So, Scott, um, if you're ever in Australia, please, please, we'd love to see you here. We'll look after you. And okay. uh, thanks for being part of the, the show. And thanks again, Jess.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jessica. It's been, it's been a pleasure to speak with you both today.
0: Thanks very much, Scott. Really appreciate your time.